Well, good morning. It's an honor to be here with you. I really enjoyed the conference yesterday and uh, being able to spend time with Rick Oliver and get to know him and his wife a little bit better. We knew of each other, but we hadn't actually met each other, so it was kind of fun for both of us to, to do that. But how many of you, just for my benefit, were not here at the conference yesterday? Okay, a number of you. I will just very briefly repeat my background since you might not know that much about myself. Um, I'm actually just from Waukesha, not that exciting, but everyone's got to be from somewhere. Um, I was raised in a Christian home. I had placed my trust in Christ when I was in early grade school years and believed the Bible from cover to cover growing up. Went to public schools all the way through high school. Then when I graduated, I went to John Brown University in Arkansas to study mechanical engineering. Uh, partway through, I became more interested in physics. I left there. They didn't have a physics major, just a minor. Came back to Wisconsin, went to UW-Whitewater to get a degree in physics, and that's when my world changed quite a bit, going from that smaller Christian college where my engineering professors actually opened up every class in prayer to the large state university where my physics professors obviously did not open up in prayer, and they were all evolutionists. Some of them were atheists, and they were telling me that I was wrong about everything that I believed, and that really kind of stunned me because it was the first time in my life that I was really challenged about what I believed, and I realized for the first time that even though I did know what I believed, I didn't know why. I really didn't have any evidences. You know, how did I really know that God existed and the Bible was true and the flood and all those things? I, I just kind of believed all those things and never really thought it through, though. And now here are my Ph.D. You know, physics professors, who I assumed had a lot of evidence for what they believed, that made me uncomfortable to not have any evidence myself. I found out later they really didn't have evidence. They just had very strong faith that it was somehow true. But that's how I got my start. God put it on my heart at that point in my life, about my junior year of college, to start looking into these things. So I had been researching and speaking on the authority of Scripture and particularly the creation-evolution controversy for the past 29 years. Uh, about a little over eight years ago, God led me into uh, founding the Creation Education Center. Now I've been doing this full-time for the past eight years traveling around the country and a little bit out of the country as well. So that's my background in a nutshell. And what's interesting is just a few months ago, after having been you know, speaking for 29 years, just a few months ago, I, I asked myself a question that I had never asked before. How come when I transferred to Whitewater and was challenged in my faith, how come I didn't walk away? Because right now, 75 or more percent of Christian students from evangelical fundamental homes are walking away from their faith during their college years. Three quarters or more of our own kids walking away from their faith. How come I didn't walk away? Well, I believe that it had a lot to do with my upbringing and my parents. I had such a good relationship with my parents that I just thought, I I don't think that what they told me was wrong. I don't doubt my parents and my pastor had a good church growing up too. And so I thought there's got to be evidence for what I believe, and I looked into it and found a lot of it. Uh, But a lot of students today aren't doing that. They're walking away, and a lot of it has to do with them not really being prepared and having different relationships with their parents, a lot of things going on in their homes. Just one quick example before I jump into this talk. Um, I was speaking at a mega church in Florida, and I gave a presentation in which I mentioned these large percentages of students that are walking away from their faith. And afterwards, I was at my table, and a woman came up, literally crying, and she's saying, she said, that was my son. He grew up in our home, believing in God and the Bible and Jesus and all these things, went off to college, and after one semester, came back and said, I'm an atheist. She's just heartbroken, and I, I said, I'm sorry to hear that. I wasn't really surprised, because I hear that all the time. Um, and she said, would you please talk with him? And I said, well, I wouldn't mind talking with him, but I said, I live in the Milwaukee area, and I said, you live in Tampa. <laughs> 
And she said, I would pay to fly you down to Tampa and put you up in a condo if you would talk with him. I mean, that's how desperate she was and how much she cared about her son. And I said, well, I, you know, I'll pray about that. But I said, you know what, I, I don't know your son. I've never met him. But I said, I guarantee you his issue is not science. It's not academics. I said, he's probably gone through some rough times in his life. He goes off to college and has professors who tell him the whole thing is not true anyway. The Bible's full of errors and contradictions. Science has disproved the creation account. There never was a flood. Where did all that water come from? Where did all that water go? And no could fit all those animals on that ark. Jesus isn't the son of God. He's just another guy and, and on and on and on. And I said, then he comes home and tells you all that, and you can't answer the questions. And her jaw just dropped, and she said, how did you know? And I said, well, I, I didn't really know your son specifically, but I said, in general, that's how it happens. And so I, I wish I had time for the full story. I don't, but uh, I did end up getting together with him for three hours in a cheesecake factory. And boy, was he angry. And I, I told her, I said, if I come down to talk to him, I said, I'm not coming down to debate him I said, the last thing he needs is to tell him he needs to get himself back in church again. I said, Churchill's the problem for him. He needs someone to listen to him and to find out, hey, tell me your story. I heard you grew up believing in God and Jesus and the Bible. Now here you are, an atheist. Tell me what happened. I, I wanted to know his story of what he went through. And I did. I asked him those questions, and we talked for three and a half hours. And most of the time he was swearing at me, and he's just going off. And I, then he'd apologize, and he'd swear, and he apologized. I said, you know what? You don't have to apologize to me. I said, if you didn't tell me these things, then I'd be upset. This is what I'm here for, to hear what is going on. And so, I, again, I wish I had time for the full story, but I'll just jump into the end of it. We kept in contact um, for a year after that uh, through email. And I told him, I said, let's keep in touch, but I said, let's not debate. And I said, you and I both know I'm not going to change your mind. You're not going to change my mind. And I had told him early on in the meeting, I said, if you change your mind during lunch today, I'll have no respect for you. I said, you didn't get to this point overnight, and you're not going to change your, your mind in a few minutes that we talk here. So we kept in touch. We didn't debate anything, but he kept telling me he, just, he thought that I was a really good friend to him, and that's what I wanted to be. Um, so we kept in touch, and then about a year later, out of the blue, I got an email from him, and he said he wanted to be baptized. And it was just very encouraging to me, and I, and I knew that he didn't need to hear more facts from me. Um, he knew that God existed, which we'll talk about today in this talk here. Uh, he needed someone to show grace to him and to care about him and to be patient. And so that's what this is really all about. And you know, we talk about some pretty exciting things about creation and evolution. And sometimes it's dangerous because people want to run out and beat someone over the head with these facts. And it just doesn't work that way. We need to be very, very gracious, just like God has been gracious with us. So that's a little mini talk before I start this talk here. A little background with this particular talk. I pretty much guarantee you that um, you probably have never heard a talk like this before. It's very unique. Um, it's going to be very encouraging, too. And the title, Faith is Not a Four-Letter Word, this title popped into my head a while back, and I thought, that's kind of a clever title. Um, four-letter words are bad. Faith isn't bad, and faith isn't the four-letter word. It's five. But I found out that uh, many youth aren't familiar with the phrase four-letter words. So they're always coming up to me and saying, faith, it's five letters, it's not four. I'm like, I know it's supposed to be clever, but I guess if I have to explain it, it's not that clever. Um, but... It has to do with facts versus faith. The skeptics say they're all into facts and everything and proven stuff, and Christians, you guys just have faith, and that's how, that's how they perceive it. And many, many Christians perceive it the same way. Well, you know, Christianity, it is a faith, and you just have to believe it, you know, and they kind of feel like they have to apologize for it, and they're kind of intimidated by that, and it keeps them from sharing their faith because it's just a faith, whereas the skeptics are all into proving all these things. So this talk is going to kind of dispel this myth of facts versus faith, and it's going to train you how to defend your faith 
without having to know the details of DNA, carbon-14 dating, dinosaurs, Bible manuscripts, evidence for the resurrection, and all these things. Those are good things, and I think it's good to know some things about that, but you can actually defend your faith without even going that route. I think it's going to be very encouraging. Again, a very different approach. Probably most of you have never seen this presented before. A few comments about faith. I grabbed these off the Internet. This is what other people think about faith. Say, faith is not a virtue. Faith is gullibility, dishonesty, blindness, absence of reason. Faith should not be respected. It should be detested. And we have Sam Harris. He's one of the leading atheists today. This is what he said. It's time that we admitted that faith is nothing more than the license religious people give to one another to keep believing when reason fails. And we have Christopher Hitchens. He was also a leading atheist. Uh, He passed away not real long ago. He said, it's called faith because it's not knowledge. And we have Richard Dawkins, probably arguably the leading atheist around today, very outspoken evolutionist. This is what he had to say. Faith is a great cop-out, a great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is a belief in in spite of, even because of, the lack of evidence. These guys are not impressed with the idea of faith. Even Mark Twain talked about faith. He said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. (laughs) We know it's not true, but we just have faith anyway. That's their idea of what faith is all about. But these ideas of faith, I think, have even crept into many churches Here's a sign outside of one church. It said this. It said, reason is the greatest enemy that faith has. I think that's a terrible message to be portraying to people driving by. That faith, reason is the enemy of faith. Isaiah says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. God wants us to use our minds and reason through things. Here's another sign. It said, if your faith is big enough, facts don't count. Don't worry about those pesky facts. If your faith is big enough, you don't have to worry about any of that. You just, we just believe it anyway. Again, a terrible message to be portraying to people driving by. But here's a biblical definition of faith. We've read you know, Hebrews chapter 1, or chapter 11, starting in verse 1. This is what it says. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, I've read this verse many times in my life. You've probably read it a number of times yourself. And it's kind of neat how... No matter how long you study the Bible, there's always something new that pops out. In this case, I think this should have popped out at me a long time ago, but I probably really wasn't studying it so much, just kind of lightly reading it. But this is what I've seen from this verse. It's not about finding evidence for our faith. This verse is saying that faith is the evidence. You go back and look, it says, now faith is the evidence of things not seen. What does that mean? Well, this is what I think it means. The fact that we have the type of faith we do is evidence that God exists because we couldn't have that type of faith if God didn't exist. This is not the type of blind faith where you just decide to believe something. No, this is a faith where you know it's true and that can only come from God. It is a gift from God. The faith that we have is actually evidence for Christianity. I'm not going to go quite that route and develop that more philosophically. It gets kind of deep, but I think it's very interesting. This is what this verse is saying. And the context is this. Read the rest of this. It says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith is a requirement. If you're only going to believe in something after it's been proven, you're not going to be able to please God because God expects us to trust him for what he says. But now the world would look at this passage a bit differently. 
they would want to rewrite it and they would want to say this. By science, we understand that the universe was formed by accident so that what is seen was not made out of anything supernatural. And without faith, it's impossible to please scientists because anyone who comes to them must believe that they are right and that they reward those who consistently trust them. <laughs> Can I say, trust us, we're scientists, we know what we're talking about, we deal with facts. That's the way that they would want to look at this passage. Well, we're going to talk about defending the Christian faith here. I think it's going to get really interesting. There are two major elements to the Christian faith. Number one, that God exists. And number two, that you're not him. Now, that's not really the second one. The second one actually is that the Bible is the written word of God. Two things, God exists and the Bible is his word. If we could prove those two things, that God exists and the Bible is his word, we'd be done. We wouldn't have to prove anything else. You wouldn't have to prove the creation account because the Bible says that God created everything. You wouldn't have to prove the flood because the Bible says there was a flood. You wouldn't have to prove the resurrection because the Bible says that Jesus rose from the dead. So if we've already proven that God exists and the Bible is his word, you wouldn't have to prove anything else. But there's a big problem with that approach. Here's why. You're not supposed to prove that God exists and you can't prove that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Now, right now, you might think that I'm a heretic and wonder, like, who is this guy? Where is he headed? Hang in there with me. You're going to see that this makes a lot of sense, and this is actually encouraging to us, and it will help you defend your faith, and that this approach is actually very biblical. Now, when you think about the existence of God, probably the first thing that pops into your head is a coil of rope, right? Maybe that's just me. <laughs> but here's my point. Let's say you went to a hardware store, and you asked for one meter of rope. So the guy goes over to the coil, he cuts off a section and hands it to you and says, there you go, here's your meter. And then you're asking, well, how do I know it's a meter? He says, well, I, I know it's a meter because I used a tape measure. So it's not just his opinion, he actually used a tape measure. He's appealing to a higher authority, the tape measure, not just his opinion, the tape measure. He appealed to a higher authority. You say, okay, how do I know the tape measure is accurate? He says, okay, good question. I know it's accurate because they make it in the manufacturing plants and they do it just right there. So he's appealing to an even higher authority now, not just his opinion or the tape measure, but the manufacturing plant where they make the tape measures. Okay, how do I know they're doing it right in the manufacturing plant, you ask? Because well, I know they're doing it right there because they're using the standards that were established at the General Council of Weights and Measures back in 1983. And they determined that a meter is going to be the distance light travels in a vacuum in one 300 millionth of a second. <laughs> So they're very, very, very precise with this. And it is the ultimate authority for determining what a meter is. That council decided that's going to be the length of a meter. It's the end of the line. You can't go any higher. It's the ultimate authority. So now this is a pretty simple progression. You kind of understand that you kept appealing to a higher authority until you, you got to the end of the line. Eventually you're going to get to the end of the line. A meter is that length because they said it is. Okay, with that in mind, think about this. If the Bible is truly the word of God, then it must be the ultimate authority for us. And if it's the ultimate authority, there's no way of proving it because you can't appeal to a higher authority to check it out. It's not like there's a mega God out there over our God. We appeal to the mega God and the mega God says, yes, the book you're looking at, that was written by the subservient God that you guys worship. You can't do that. It's, it's the end of the line when we look at God and his word. So we don't go about proving that the Bible's from God. It is our starting point as Christians. 
and I'm going to continue to develop this, and it's going to make more and more sense, and it's going to be very encouraging. So we get back to this whole dilemma of facts versus faith. Skeptics are all into facts. Christians, you guys just have faith. Well, everybody, no matter who they are, they have a starting point, a foundation for their belief system. We call it a starting point, bias, presuppositions, beginning assumptions. Everybody starts somewhere. You can't avoid that. You have to start somewhere. Well, the skeptic wants you to think that their starting point is facts. They're all into facts. They base everything they believe on facts. Well, you can ask them. Let's say this is an atheist. You can ask him, what do you, what do you mean by facts? Explain that to me. He says, well, you know, science, you know, proven things and all that. Okay, but, but what is science? Science is really the thoughts and opinions of other men and women. They look at stuff and they say, this is what we think is true. So this guy's foundation isn't so much facts or even science. It's really the thoughts and opinions of other men and women, most of which he's probably never even met. And you ask him, how do you know you can trust the thoughts and opinions of other men and women? And he says, well, I, I can just tell. I can think through it and I can tell that they're right. So now he's using his own reason. He's trusting his own reason. Then you can ask him, how do you know you can trust your own reason? He says, well, I, I know I can trust it because I, you know, it's worked for me consistently throughout my life. Oh, so now you're using your reason to tell me why you can trust your reason, which is circular reasoning. And at that point, I'd say, that's okay. I'm, I'm not going to argue with you on that. I just want you to better understand your foundation isn't so much all these facts and proven things. You're really ultimately assuming you can trust your reason, but you can't prove that. But that's okay. Everybody's got to start somewhere. I just want you to better understand where you're starting. Okay, what about the Christian? What is our foundation? What's our starting point? Well, I already mentioned it. We believe that God exists and the Bible is his word. And then the atheist says, you can't prove that. I say, I'm not trying to prove it. <laughs> got to start somewhere. You got to pick something. I didn't argue with that. I, I get to pick something too. So everybody starts somewhere. And it's not about proving it because you can't prove it. If you could prove it, then it wouldn't be your starting point. Whatever you were using to prove it, that would be your starting point. So it gets a little bit deeper, but... I think it makes sense. So we start there, and then we build everything else we believe upon that foundation, our ideas of science and logic, history, philosophy, ethics, morality. That's all built upon our starting point that God exists and the Bible is his word. Okay, hopefully make that makes some sense so far. We'll continue to develop this. Now, a typical defense of Christianity, we talk about the complexity of life and DNA, which I did a little bit of that yesterday, evidence of the resurrection, Bible manuscripts, and all that Old and New Testament. I have lectured on these things for years, and I will continue to do so. But we don't want to use evidence as proof, because it doesn't work that way. Scientists don't even prove anything. You talk to a, a good scientist, he'll say, no, we don't really prove things. We just have ideas about stuff, come up with evidence, and if you come up with a lot of really strong evidence, you'll say this thing is virtually certain, virtually true. Or if you come up with a lot of evidence against it, you say this thing is virtually certain not to be true, or somewhere in the middle. That's all they do. They never fully prove something because they don't know everything. They might discover something later where they realize, oh, we were wrong about that. Aspirin's bad for you. Aspirin's good for you. Caffeine's good for you. Caffeine's bad for you. Eggs are good. Eggs are bad. Milk is good. You know, on and on and on. Just changing their minds. You know, they constantly changing because they don't know everything. So we don't want. They don't use evidence as proof. So you know, we shouldn't either because you you can't. So we don't use evidence as proof. I'm going to give you six reasons why, the full talk here has seven, I just got to shorten it up a little bit, uh, six reasons why we don't use evidence as proof, and I think it'll make a lot of sense to you. Number one, we don't use evidence as proof because the skeptics may have a different interpretation of the evidence. 
Because facts do not speak for themselves. Every fact that you've ever heard or ever will hear has to be interpreted. For example, DNA. Christian will look at DNA and talk about the details of it and say, this is proof, you know, that God created it. Obviously, it had to be designed by God because it's so complex. An atheist will look at the same DNA and say, no, we don't think it was God that designed it. We just think that that can happen naturally over time. Nature will do that. Yeah, we don't have all the answers yet, but we're getting there, and we'll eventually find it. So they're looking at the same facts we are, and they're interpreting it differently. It's more interesting than that. We have a third person, another atheist, looks at the same DNA and comes up with a different interpretation. They say, you know what? Christians are kind of right. There is no way that that DNA is an accident. It just can't happen by itself. But it wasn't designed by your God, it was designed by aliens. (laughs) So three different people looking at the exact same facts coming up with three different interpretations. Not based on the facts, it's based on their starting points, what they believe to begin with. So you can't just throw facts out there and prove your point because it's always going to be interpreted by one's worldview. In fact, we have this thing backwards. Most people think you look at evidence, you come to a conclusion, figure out which worldview is correct. In reality, it's the opposite. You use your existing worldview to interpret and evaluate the evidence and come to a conclusion. (laughs) You start with your starting point. That's why it's called a starting point. Second reason, you could be arguing from ignorance. They say just because we don't know doesn't mean it had to be God. Got this off the internet. Your inability to comprehend biology is not proof of God. They're saying just because you Christians can't understand all of it doesn't mean that God had to do it. And there is some logic to that. Here's an example. Ancient Hindus, they used to believe that thunder and lightning was the gods. They were angry and casting this stuff to earth. Well, you know, we've studied a little bit and realized, no, it's not these angry gods. It's just natural phenomena of nature. And so just because we don't understand something wouldn't mean it would have to be God. It might be that we don't know enough about it. So we shouldn't just say because we don't know, obviously, instantly means it had to be God. Thirdly, we could be wrong about our own understanding. We might discover something later that we realize, yeah, we ourselves were wrong. And that happens all the time because we don't know everything. Whether you're an atheist or a Christian, we have limited information so that we could potentially be wrong about our ideas. Uh, Fifthly, skipping the fourth one, uh, we are letting the skeptic be the judge. And this is kind of interesting. If you think about it, where do we most often hear evidence being presented? It's typically in a courtroom situation. Lawyers come in and they present evidence to the judge and sometimes the jury. And then the judge gets to sit in authority and decide what the truth of the matter is. So they hear the evidence, the facts, and the judge, he or she, decides what the truth is. Well, when you give evidence to, let's say, an atheist, you're giving evidence to someone who doesn't think clearly. And here's why I say that. Romans chapter 1. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. This is not name calling by God. God is describing their thinking process. God has given them so much evidence that he exists that they are without excuse. But because they've chosen to ignore this evidence because of their own unrighteousness, God has given them over to a reprobate mind, darkened thinking. And their thinking process has become foolish. God's describing what has happened to these people who have rejected the initial knowledge he has given them. So when we run around giving all this evidence to the skeptics about you know, why creation is true or the Bible or whatever, and they say they don't get it, they don't see it that way, and we're like, how can you not see this? Romans chapter 1 explains why they don't see it that way. This is a spiritual issue, not just an academic one. 
a lot of the skeptics I run into are PhD scientists. They're plenty smart. <laughs> they don't need more information. This is a spiritual issue. And evidence number six, why we don't, or don't use evidence as facts, we are elevating evidence and authority over God's word or science, saying that science can tell us whether or not God's word is true. And it sounds great to say that science proves the Bible. I actually used to say that for a number of years, and I realized that's not really the best thing to say. Because it would say then that science has the ability to tell us whether or not God's word is true. And maybe today it's looking pretty good. There's all this, a lot of scientific evidence that shows God's word is true. But then tomorrow or next week they discover something that's not looking so good. So then we'd have to say, well, maybe, maybe it's not the inspired word of God. And then later it is, and then it isn't, and then it is, and it isn't. Back and forth and back and forth. The entire time science sits in ultimate authority over God's word. It's really just the opposite. The Bible sits in authority over science. It's not a science textbook. We're glad it's not because science textbooks have to be corrected and updated and changed all the time. But it provides a great framework for us to properly understand astronomy, biology, geology, anthropology, and all those things. Um, God's word is the authority over temporal conclusions of science. And then lastly, the skeptic or atheist already knows that God exists. There are no atheists on the planet. There never have been. There never will be. Why in the world would I say that? Is it because I've uh, interviewed all the atheists and realized they're wrong? No. Is it because I've read all the philosophy books about atheism and realized they're wrong? No. It's because I've read God's word. And this is what he said back in Romans chapter 1 again. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. God himself has put the knowledge of himself in every single human being. So there's nobody who doesn't know that God exists. Now, there are plenty of people who have chosen to ignore this information and they call themselves atheists. So in that sense, there have always been atheists on the planet and there always will be. But they're not people who don't know that God exists. They're people who are ignoring those things. So when we run around trying to prove God's existence, God's kind of saying, what are you doing? <laughs> they already know I exist. This is a spiritual issue. So we need to approach it that way and not just throw facts at them trying to prove God's existence. He doesn't need us to do that. He's already given that information. This is a spiritual issue. So if we don't use evidence to prove the existence of God and the inspiration of the Bible, um, it's our starting point, then what good is evidence? A lot of people say, you know, what do we do with it? Well, we'll get to that. So how do we approach these skeptics when witnessing? Well, I would suggest this. We start with God's word. If it's our starting point as Christians, that's where we should start when discussing things with skeptics. First of all, we should share what it says don't assume you're on the same page. What I mean by that is I have spent many years when I was younger giving a lot of evidences for the inspiration of the Bible. And once in a while I actually convinced some skeptics or atheists that the Bible is really written by God. But it was depressing for them because they had the impression that God was this evil ogre who just hated everyone. He's just waiting for you to mess up when you do wham, he's going to smash you because he hates you that much. And now I just convinced them that that's true because that was their understanding of the Bible. So don't, understand, don't assume they understand what the Bible actually teaches. Share, first and foremost, what it actually says about God and his 100% holiness, his divine character, and how much he loves us and his ultimate sacrifice for us in sending a son to die on a cross. Make sure they understand what the Bible teaches 
and then secondarily go and defend what it says, showing how it explains the best, the real world that we live in. Do those two things. So what good is evidence? Again, a lot of people get depressed or thinking, man, I knew all these really cool facts, and now you're saying I can't use them? I'm not saying that. You can use evidence, and the way we use evidence is to test these starting points or these worldviews. We take them out for a little test drive to see how they work. We can't prove or disprove them because they're starting points. As we already talked, they're, you're incapable of being proved because they're starting points. So we're not, we're not trying to prove anything. We're just testing them out. How well do they work? And what I'm going to do with the remainder of this talk is where you're going to test these worldviews. Uh, three examples philosophically and then three scientific examples. And again, not trying to prove or disprove anything. We're just checking out how well they work. The first philosophical example we're going to look at is the idea of logic. Again, what we're doing is the skeptic atheist has his starting point, his worldview. Christians, we've got ours, and we're going to say, okay, let's use them to see how they explain the real world around us. And the first thing we're going to look at is logic. You can ask this skeptic, this atheist, do you believe that logic exists? They probably look at you and say, what, are you crazy? Of course I believe that logic exists. Okay, I'm just checking. So you believe that logic exists. Do you believe that there are actually laws of logic? like the law of non-contradiction. I can't both be standing here talking to you right now and not standing here talking to you right now. And they would say, well, yeah, I believe there are laws of logic. Okay, do you believe these laws are physical things? Can I take them into a laboratory and weigh them and paint them and bend them and all that? And they'd say, no, they're, they're not physical things. They're, they're non-physical. They're immaterial. Okay, are they the same everywhere? Are the laws of logic the same here, Calvary Chapel, Appleton, as they are in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and in New Hampshire, and in Guam, and on the moon, and, or are they different in different places? They'd say, no, they're, they're the same everywhere. Okay, do they change? Will they be the same tomorrow as they are today, whether they're the same 500 years ago as they are, or do they change? They say, no, they, they don't change, they stay the same. Okay, so you're telling me you believe there are laws of logic that are immaterial, non-physical, universal, the same everywhere, and unchanging. And they would say, yep, that's what I believe. Okay, then I have a question for you. Where did they come from? Given your worldview, your starting point, the thing that you chose, use that to explain to me where these non-physical things come from because you as an atheist think that the only thing that exists is matter and energy. There's no God, no spirit. But we've never seen non-physical or physical things create non-physical things. But yet you believe in these non-physical things, so where did they come from? And using your worldview, can you please explain to me how you know they're the same everywhere? I mean, what is it in your worldview? Use that to tell me how you know they have to be the same everywhere. And then again, use your starting point, the thing you chose, to explain to me how you know they never change. What is it in there that tells you all those things? Nothing. There is nothing in that worldview that can account for the existence of laws of logic or why they'd be the same everywhere, why they'd be non-material, and why they don't change. Nothing. But yet, they believe they exist they use the laws of logic, and they want you to be logical. But in essence, an atheist has to assume that God exists to justify the existence of logic to then use logic to tell you why God doesn't exist. It doesn't make any sense. Their worldview cannot support that. Well, how about the Christian worldview? How do we explain that? Very simply. Christians believe in a God who is immaterial, universal, and unchanging. That God created a universe that operates under the laws of logic which themselves are immaterial, universal, and unchanging. It fits perfectly with a Christian worldview, but it's totally antithetical to an atheistic worldview. So again, we're not trying to prove or disprove anything. We're just saying, it's not looking so good for you right now. 
And if you can't even account for the laws of logic, you're kind of done. Because you have to use logic to talk about anything else. So again, you're just saying, okay, that one doesn't look so good for you, but it's fine with me and my Christian worldview. And then you look at another example, absolute morality. Why is it that no matter where you go, people just intrinsically know that murder is wrong? They they just sense that. You know, you can't just go up to someone and shoot them because you don't like their hat. We just kind of know that that's just wrong. Where does that come from in an atheistic worldview? That sense that everyone just knows that. Well, that's, it's, it's evolution. It's how we've evolved, you know, survival of the fittest and all that. Really? Well, survival of the fittest means the fittest survive. In fact, if I want to wipe out all the atheists because they're kind of bothering me and I want to survive as a Christian, I could just kill all of you and you can't tell me that I'm wrong. Well, no, you, you can't do that. That would be wrong. Well, why is it wrong? If it's just evolution, that's how we got here, survival of the fittest. And now if I continue that, you tell me I'm wrong all of a sudden? Well, no, it's, it's, you just feel that that's wrong because of the way the chemicals move in your brain. Really. So if the chemicals move in my brain differently and I sense it's not wrong to kill you, then you can't tell me I'm wrong because it's just chemicals like you're saying. Well, no, it's, um, they have no explanation of why everyone just senses. They just know that murder is wrong. What about the Christian worldview? We know it's wrong because it violates God's character and he told us that it's wrong and he's put that knowledge inside our hearts that we just know that those things are wrong. It fits in perfectly well with the Christian worldview but it's antithetical again to the atheistic worldview. Third philosophical example, knowledge and certainty. This one's kind of fun. You could ask the atheist, is there anything you know for sure? Absolutely certain. There's no way you could be wrong. And they might say, well, um, I know I'm here right now. Really, how do you know you're here right now? Because I'm talking to you. How do you not know that maybe you're just dreaming that you're here? Well, because you're talking back to me. How can you be sure that you're not just dreaming that I'm talking back to you? Uh, well, well, I could pinch myself and it hurts. How do you know you're not just dreaming that you pinch yourself and it hurts? <laughs> they can't even prove that they, they exist. Now, there's a lot of really strong evidence that they really do exist. That's a pretty good assumption that we can all assume that we really do exist. I don't have a problem with that. But they can't know that for sure. They have to assume that they exist. And if I told you right now that my next-door neighbor's oldest son is 20 years old, um, but I, I could be wrong. If I'm admitting that I could be wrong, do I really know for sure? No, not if I'm saying I could be wrong. So then you ask the skeptic this. This is, just gets kind of interesting. Out of all the information in the entire known universe, what percentage do you think you know? Out of all the information out there, and they'd probably say, well, a pretty small percentage. And I'd say, yeah, me too. But let's just say, let's humor ourselves. Let's say you know 1% of everything that exists. And it's, again, probably more than we know, but let's just say the skeptic knows 1% of everything. Is it possible? Is it at all possible that something in the 99% would show them that they were actually wrong about what they thought they knew in the 1%? Is that possible? And the atheist would have to say, well, yeah, it's possible. Okay, so if you're admitting it's possible you're wrong about the 1%, do you really know the 1%? No. In fact, they have to admit they could be wrong about everything. They can't know anything for sure. And then they say, oh, yeah, but you can't know anything either. Are you sure about that? (laughs) They can't even know that you can't know anything in the atheistic worldview. They have to admit they could be wrong about everything. 
Well, there's one way that you could be certain about something. And that is if you knew 100% of everything. Then there's no possible way of being wrong about anything because there's nothing else out there to determine you were wrong about something else. But that doesn't look too good for us. We don't know everything. But there's actually one other way you could know something for sure. If you knew somebody who knew everything and that being decided to tell you some of that in a way you could understand it and did not lie. <laughs> That's the Christian worldview. God knows everything and he's chosen to tell some of us or some, some of that to us in a way that we could understand and he does not lie. A Christian has a basis for claiming to know something for certain, whereas an atheist has to admit they could be wrong about everything. And we're not trying to prove or disprove here. We're just saying it's not looking so good. With your worldview, you'd have to admit you could be wrong about everything, whereas Christian can actually logically claim that there's something they could know for sure. Now, those are three philosophical things. Now we're going to look at three scientific things very quickly, again, just testing these worldviews. We're going to start out looking at the origin of the universe, which we looked at in the conference yesterday in a little bit more detail. These worldviews make predictions about things. The atheistic worldview says the origin of the universe came about by the Big Bang. It's 100% naturalistic, whereas the Christian worldview says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and everything. Those are the two views of these starting points or these worldviews. Now we could just look at some evidence to see which side the evidence seems to fall best on. And I'm going to be looking at some of that yesterday. Um, we could look at the first and second laws of thermodynamics. I'm not going to go through a lot of those details because of time this morning, but the first law of thermodynamics states that you can't get something from nothing. Well, the atheistic worldview says you, you really did get something from nothing to begin with. The second law says when you do have something, uh, over time it goes downhill, it gets worse and worse. I'm getting skipping some of the details of that, but evolution kind of goes the opposite of that. You have this random explosion and it gets more and more complex over time. So it kind of goes against those laws. And a second thing would be the fine-tuning or the anthropic principle that we talked about yesterday, that there's all these factors and things about the universe and life here that are finely tuned, they have to be just where they are for life to be possible. If they weren't, if there were any other values, life isn't possible. So is that evidence that this is all just an accident or that it was designed? And I'll repeat what, uh, what I went over yesterday very briefly here for those of you who weren't here. Um, I actually didn't mention this slide, but I'll get to the other thing next that I mentioned yesterday. We have the ratio of electron to proton mass, the color and mass of our sun. All these things have to be right where they are. Or life isn't possible. The mass of the moon and the distance from the earth, the gravitational field, the tilt of the earth, oxygen and nitrogen ratio, and then on and on. And there's huge, 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 huge list of all these things that have to be just right. So you'd have to say that just isn't going to happen by accident. And looking at just two of these examples that we did yesterday, the gravitational constant and the cosmological constant. The force of gravity in this cosmological constant, which is the energy density of empty space. Just two of these factors in physics that have to be right where they are or life is impossible. And they have calculated the chances of these things being right just by accident. No God, no designer, no creator, just big bang and hey, we got lucky. It's just, and this is just two factors out of hundreds we could look at. The chances that these were by, an, by accident was one chance in a hundred million, trillion, 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 trillion. <laughs> I mean, this just screams, this couldn't be an accident. But those who believe it was an accident have to exercise faith, that even though the odds are greatly against it, it just happened anyway. That's faith. That goes against science. This science is saying it had to have been designed. So I agree with Fred Hoyle. Again, he was an atheist astronomer, came to the belief in God just by studying math and science. 
He said, a common sense and satisfying interpretation of the facts suggests a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. He's just saying this, this just can't be an accident. It was designed. So those things fit very well with the Christian worldview, but they're totally against an atheistic worldview and Big Bang and all that. Again, we're not trying to prove or disprove. We're just saying the facts seem to line up much better with the Christian worldview. Secondly, the variety of life. We talked about this yesterday in a little bit more detail. The predictions here, atheistic worldview says that the variety we see came about through evolution, which is mutations and natural selection. But the Bible says that God created creatures to reproduce after their kind. So yes, they can produce a variety, but it's always within limits. The horses do horses, cats do cats, and so on. Those are the two predictions or models of these worldviews. Well, how about the actual evidence? Well, we saw yesterday that you can breed a dog and a wolf and you get a wolf dog because dogs, dingoes, coyotes, and wolves are all the same kind of animal. They can all today breed together. And that's what the Bible says, that God created creatures to reproduce after their kind. But what you can't breed is a dog and a hummingbird to get something like that. Those are not the same kinds of animals that can't happen today. Scientists know that, and that's what the Bible said all along. So that fits in very well with the biblical worldview that God created these creatures to reproduce after their kind, but not evolution, which says that one kind would change into another kind consistently, constantly, over millions and millions of years. It just happened over and over and over and over. We've never seen it happen. There's not even evidence in the fossil record for that. So again, just area shows that the Christian worldview is much better supported by reality. And these are the two talks I gave yesterday. I've got them on DVDs out, out on the table if you're interested. Creation versus evolution, the case from science, and then evolution, probable or problematic. Third and final test of these worldviews here is the idea of information. And Rick touched on this briefly yesterday. The two predictions here, atheistic worldview says that random actions of molecules smashing together created all the information we see around us today, or as the Christian worldview in John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word or logos or information, that God is the one who created all this. Well, let's look at some evidence here. A newspaper can hold a fair amount of information, and it does so by using paper and ink. And then books using paper and ink also can hold a lot more information, and then a CD Metal and plastic can hold even more information. A single CD can hold about 100,000 pages of text. So this metal and plastic, they do a great job of storing that information. And then you've got computer hard drives, which hold even more information, also made out of metal and some plastic. In each of these cases, the physical materials do a great job of storing information. But in none of these cases did the physical materials create the information. Paper and ink didn't write the newspaper articles or the book. Plastic and metal didn't write Microsoft Office software on there. A software engineer did and the hard drive and all that. So these physical materials don't create the information. They just do a good job of storing it. So then you look at DNA, also made out of physical materials. DNA does an even better job of storing information. We looked at an example yesterday. We'll continue to look here at the storage capacity of DNA. It's just fascinating the amount of information that potentially can store. We're going to just look at a pinhead amount of DNA. How much data could be stored in just this tiny little pinhead amount of DNA? Well, again, I mentioned that a CD, single CD, can hold about 100,000 single pages of text. A lot of information on that CD. Well, a little two-gig thumb drive can hold three CDs, three entire CDs on a little tiny thumb drive, so it does an even better job of storing that data. And then today we have these external hard drives that we use, 
let's say you have a two terabyte hard drive, you can hold a thousand of those thumb drives on the two terabyte hard drive. It's just amazing, a thousand thumb drives and the little two terabyte hard drive, a little bit bigger than this Bible here. Well, now let's take a look at the storage capacity of just a little pinhead amount of DNA. You could store two million two terabyte hard drives on a pinhead amount of DNA. It is unbelievable. But they want you to believe it's just an accident. That's just what happens. So looking at the origin of information here, it's much better suited for the biblical worldview that God, an intelligent source, created that information versus the atheistic worldview that says just molecules smashing together created all that information. We've never, ever, ever, ever seen that in science where molecules just create information. So why would we conclude that when we look at DNA that blows away anything that man has done? Again, it fits in very well with the Christian worldview. So all we've done here is we just took these worldviews out for a test drive, and over and over and over we see that the atheistic worldview just caves in on itself and contradicts itself. You can't explain these things, whereas a Christian worldview, just very naturally, oh yeah, that makes sense, yep, that's what we would expect, that's what we would expect to see over and over and over. So the two major elements of Christianity, that God exists and the Bible is his word, they're our starting points as Christians. And we use that to best explain the entire world that we see around us. And that's where we need to start when we witness to other people that God does exist and this this is his word. In fact, if you don't use that as your starting point, as you've seen, you have a hard time explaining anything else. So you're not telling the atheist, I have to be a Christian, I have to believe this and twist their arm. It doesn't work that way. You can't force someone to exercise faith. It's a contradiction in terms. They have to make a decision of their will to place their faith in Jesus Christ. You can't make them do that, but you can present a good case where they can make that decision. But if they choose not to do that, if they choose to reject that, which is we're living in a free country, they can certainly do that, but they're really going to struggle with explaining everything else around them. They're going to live contradictory lives by claiming to believe there is no God, but then not necessarily acting upon that because... They're using logic and all these other things, but again, it's antithetical to their own particular worldview. What we've just discussed is actually called presuppositional apologetics. And I purposely didn't tell you that to begin with because you might run out of this church screaming and wanting to go watch paint dry, which would sound maybe more interesting. (laughs) But what this is all about is presuppositions are things that you believe to begin with. You presuppose them to be true, even though you can't prove them. So what we've done here is we've used those presuppositions, those things you start out assuming are true you can't prove, we've used those to then evaluate the real world around us. And what we see is the presuppositions of Christianity fit in very well with the real world around us where the presuppositions of an atheistic worldview or skeptical worldview just really have a hard time with all of that. So that was faith is not a four-letter word. I hope that was intriguing to you. I hope it's encouraging that you don't necessarily have to memorize all these facts to defend your faith. It can be helpful to have some of those facts about DNA or evidence for the resurrection and all that along the way to show how these things support the Christian worldview. But it can be a lot more basic than that by just showing them that if they choose to reject this out of hand, that they're going to have an awfully hard time explaining the things around them. In fact, I've had a lot of people say, there's no evidence that God inspired the Bible. And then I ask a simple question. What would you accept as evidence that God inspired the Bible? What would that look like to you? If you saw A, B, or C, yeah, well, that would definitely be evidence God wrote that. And they say, I don't know, but I just know there's no evidence. 
How do you know there's no evidence that God wrote the Bible if you don't even know what it would look like? In fact, if you don't have criteria of what counts and what doesn't, we can't even discuss it. I had someone say the same thing about creation. There's no evidence for creation. I had just given my talk on DNA. And I said, well, what was it that I just talked about? I said it very graciously. What was that that I just discussed for 45 minutes about? You know, the DNA and mutations and natural selection and genes and all those things. And they said, yeah, but, but, but there's no scientific evidence. And that's when I asked them the same question. And I said, well, what would you accept as scientific evidence for creation? What would that look like? He said, I don't know. <laughs> and I said, well, how do you know that you didn't just see it then? And again, if you don't have any criteria what counts and what doesn't, we can't even discuss this. Another atheist emailed me and asked me the same question. He said, you know, there's no evidence for creation. And then I asked, I said, you know, and then he asked me some other questions. I said, I'd love to answer your questions, but before I can answer that, I have to ask you a question. I need to know this in order to be able to answer the rest of your questions. What would you accept as evidence for creation? He emailed back and he said, I completely understand why you would have to know that in order to answer my questions. And he did, but he didn't know what he would accept. He was very respectful, and I have all the time in the world for people like that who are respectful. So we went back and forth a little bit, and then he just kind of dropped off the face of the planet. I haven't heard from him since. But you can just ask questions back when people are demanding you know, their, their views and all that. You can just say, well, how do you know that's true? How do you know there's no God? How do you know God didn't write the Bible? It's a whole other talk. I can't go into it right now. There is so much evidence in the way I approach that. If people say this isn't written by God, I say, you know what? What would something look like if God actually wrote a book? What would it look like? Well, I would expect it to be internally consistent, wouldn't contradict itself. Secondly, I would expect it to be historically accurate. Archaeology should confirm the things that it's saying. Thirdly, I'd expect it to be scientifically accurate, that if it talks about science, not that it has to, but if it does, it should be able to be confirmed by that rather than, in a sense, in a sense disproven. And then fourthly, it should be prophetically accurate. If it's making predictions about the future, better come true. If it doesn't, that's good evidence God didn't write that. Well, that's what we see in the Bible. It's 100% internally consistent, historically accurate, scientifically accurate, and prophetically accurate. And I think I might have just a couple minutes. Let me close with this. It's not part of this talk. But, in fact, let me just finish off. I mentioned resources to those of you who were at the conference yesterday. We've got lots of DVDs out there, including this talk that I've given. It's our latest talk. A bunch of other DVDs. also, you can get us connected to speaking other places. There's a connection form out there. We have a free email newsletter you can sign up for on the table. It comes out once a month. And then also, if anyone would want to become a monthly supporter of our ministry, we don't ever charge anything. So the way we move forward as a ministry is through our monthly supporters. If you decide to become a monthly supporter, we want to give you a free set of our DVDs and a free copy of the book to take with you today. Um, and you can see me at the table. It's, we're nonprofit, so it's tax deductible. But with that, uh, we're not going to do Q&A here this morning. But let me just close with this. Um, There are so many exciting things about the Bible showing us that it absolutely must have been written by God. Let me just give you one example. I'm going to fly through it real quick. Um, There's a lot of things in the Bible that we're finding out today are scientifically accurate, but people wonder, like, well, but how did they know that? This was written long before we had microscopes and telescopes, and yet now we're finding out that they were right. Well, how did they know that? Well, it makes a lot of sense. They must have been inspired by God. And here's one example. Moses was raised in all the wisdom of the Egyptian. The book of Acts tells us that. He was raised in all the wisdom of the Egyptian. So he went to Egypt, you. Well, today, if someone goes to a university and they graduate and then they write some books, most of what they're writing in those books came from what they learned at the university. That's just kind of how it works. So Moses goes to Egypt, you, and then he writes five books, the first five books of the Bible. So do we see Egyptian wisdom in the Bible? We, We should because that's where Moses learned his stuff. If he just wrote it, that's what we would see. 
Well, here's an example of Egyptian wisdom. This is the Ebers Papyrus, written about 1550 B.C. It contains over 800 magical remedies and formulas for things. One example is if you get a splinter, you're supposed to apply worm blood and donkey dung. Modern science says, yikes, you don't want to do that. You can get tetanus spores, causes lockjaw, you can get really sick, you could even die. So modern science says, we don't know where these Egyptians got this stuff, but it's just wrong. So do we see that stuff in the Bible? We should, because that's what Moses learned. If he just wrote it on his own, not inspired, that's what we should see. Well, here's what we do see. This is from the book of Numbers, I think chapter 19. It talks about touching a dead body. Today we know you don't want to touch a dead body of an animal or anything like that because there are germs and bacteria. You could get really sick, you could even die. But Moses wrote this a long time ago. They didn't know about germ theory and bacteria and all that. Well, this is what was written. It says a priest is to take some cedar wood, hyssop, scarlet wool, and throw them on the burning ashes of a heifer or cow. <laughs> now that sounds bizarre. That sounds like something granny from the Beverly Hillbillies would put together with some possum and stir it all up. Modern science says, no, that's actually not weird. Um, the cedar wood and the ashes of the cow combine to make lye, L-Y-E, that's how we made soap. It's a caustic soda. So if you touch a dead body, washing with soap would be a good thing. The hyssop plant that converts to thiamol, that's isopropyl alcohol, kills bacteria. Touch a dead body, killing bacteria would be a good thing. The scarlet wool forms a gritty substance. So it gets in there and it's very abrasive, washes things out. And then applying it, oh, it also said you're supposed to apply it on the third and the seventh day and then you'd be considered clean. Well, why in the third and seventh day? Well, bacteria grow very well in a damp environment. So you wait a few days for it to dry out. You apply the stuff. Wait a few more days for it to dry out. Apply it one more time, and you're considered clean. So modern science says, well, that's actually a great natural remedy if you don't have antibiotics, which they wouldn't have had back then. So did Moses know anything about germs and bacteria or isopropyl alcohol? Obviously not. This is evidence that God inspired Moses. He said, Moses, write this. Trust me, this works. Okay. And there's example after example after example over and over. I have an entire talk out there on DVD. You know, how do we know the Bible is the inspired word of God? It goes through all those examples and many others. We can be so confident that God wrote this from cover to cover. And we should probably know a few of those examples. So when we're talking to a skeptic, we're not only telling them that we believe this is God's word, but we have some reasons as to why we do and reasons why they should actually consider it themselves so that we can share the gospel message in here. If you're more confident that God wrote the Bible from cover to cover, you're more confident to share its gospel message. And even though this is God's first shot at writing a book, I think he did a pretty good job. <laughs> so with that, I'm going to cut myself off. I will be in the lobby in between services, and I'll be here through the second service when, when Rick speaks, and I'll be here a little bit afterwards. So and you can always contact us through our website as well, but I will close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for <clears throat> this time we've had to look in the inspiration of your word and a defense of the Christian faith. Thank you for giving us the minds that we have. And pray for each person here this morning that their faith would be greatly strengthened so that they ultimately would be more emboldened to share the gospel message with the lost and dying world. And we just thank you for all these things that you've done for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.